Luke 20, verses 20 to 26, and then over into the next page, in chapter 21, the first four verses. So page 1055, uh, reading from verse 20. Keeping a, a close watch on him, they, that's the teachers of the law and the chief priests, sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. And over in chapter 21, as he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that you had to live on. Let's pray. Lord, it's always good to hear what you have to say to us. Help us to hear you this morning. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open to you. There, there's that story, Jesus, you told about different types of soil or different ways in which we can be receiving your word. Let us be the good soil that takes your word where it drops in, goes deep, germinates, and yields fruit in our lives. Amen. We're, we live in what we think is quite a free society, but we still do have a few taboos, things that we don't like talking about too much in public. Um, so death, uh, sex and money are quite near the top of that list of taboos. Uh, a couple of weeks ago I conducted a funeral here and as I often do at a funeral I tried to engage that question of death, uh, to look it in the eye and, and say what God's word has to say about that subject. I'm currently working on a series which uh, I hope we'll uh, maybe get a, a look at in the springtime, but later after Easter, uh, a series on sex. So when you've done death recently, you're planning to do sex, you may as well just do money and, you know, uh, get the big three all, all dealt with. So that's what we're doing today. We're talking about um, money. We're in these final chapters of Luke's Gospel, and it has a, a sort of a, a narrative movement to it. Uh, Jesus approached Jerusalem, he's arrived in Jerusalem, and last Sunday, if, if you were here, Richie started with some of Jesus' teaching in the temple. So he's going to be located in the temple for a while, and that's where we find Jesus today. And, and some of his teaching there, it's, it's incendiary, it's really 
you know, if you remember what we were thinking about last week, it was, it was hard-hitting stuff. So this morning, these couple of chunks of Jesus' teaching in the temple, they both have to do with money. And uh, when I was talking to Billy, I said, Billy, we're just going to be thinking about giving to the government and giving to God, because that's really where, where these passages take us. One thing we should notice, Jesus' teaching isn't going down well. Um, I always think it's funny. I think we imagine that if Jesus came here and taught, we'd love it. Well, the people then didn't love it, so why would we? Uh, So it's not going down. Well, chapter 20, verse 19, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, they're looking for a way to kill him. So that's how much people were loving his teaching. Let's kill this guy. And as we come to our passage, chapter 20, verse 20, there's, there's a feeling of, of high tension. It's like a high tension thriller. Keeping close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. So it's a classic case of entrapment. Go to him, pretend to be honest, and then get him. They hoped to catch Jesus in something that he said so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So they begin with a bit of flattery. Flattery is always a great way to, to get somebody's guard down, and then they drop the bait. Then they go for him. So Jesus, where do you stand on the taxation issue? Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? For us, for us that might seem like a bit of a no-brainer. You know, is it right to pay your taxes? Well, well I hope it's a no-brainer. <laughs> I'm just checking. I'm scanning faces here. Do, do people know the answer to that? Yeah? Okay, good. Sorry, I just uh, charged in with a huge assumption there. It, it wasn't as simple a question uh, when, when it was asked in Jerusalem. If, if we imagine it was a simple question, it's because we're not understanding the, the political and the social context. This is a Jewish religious leader who has a lot of support at a very popular level. He's standing in the Jewish temple, the, the symbol of uh, Jewish nationalism, the physical space where that's most symbolized. And he's being asked, should we pay taxes to our Roman oppressors? If he says yes, he loses his support base. And if he says no, then Rome comes down on him like a ton of bricks. So that's what's in the the back of the mind of this person questioning. I was trying to work out what would be a good analogy for that. I wonder if it's like driving up into West Belfast in the height of the troubles, asking one of the uh, leaders of that community, you know, how's your tax return? How do you enjoy paying into the coffers of the British state? That that might be a little bit like the, the kind of question that's being asked here. Just before we come to Jesus' reply, there's something uh, I couldn't, couldn't go over here, didn't want us to miss. Luke tells us right at the outset, verse 20, that Jesus' questioners are pretending to be honest and that they're hoping to catch Jesus out in something that he's going to say. So these guys, looks very clear, they're trying to have Jesus on. Good luck with that for any of us trying to have Jesus on. They obviously don't know who they're dealing with. In chapter 2 of his gospel, John tells us about Jesus. He didn't need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. 
Verse 23 here. He saw through their duplicity. Folks, that's a deeply unsettling reality if you pause for a moment to dwell on it. I might be able to put on a good show for a crowd. Might even be able to pull the wool over the eyes of some of the people closest to me. But not Jesus. He knows what's in a man and a woman. And folks, just in case you are tempted to despair, that's the beauty of the gospel. He knows what I'm like, and he loves me. Where else do you find that? So what does Jesus say about paying taxes? Pay them, he says. Being my follower, whatever it means for me to be the, the son of David, the king of the Jews, being my follower doesn't relieve you from your societal responsibilities, your responsibilities to wider society. It's Jesus' uh, response here in verse 25, I think, that, that leads us very quickly and very naturally into the second of the two passages. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So he's dealt pretty quickly with the Caesar question. Pay your taxes? Yeah. And we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this second passage, which is, is more about giving to God. So if you just glance over to page or to the chapter 21, verse 1, very short wee passage, and, and you'll know it, uh, perhaps, if you know these uh, gospel passages. Jesus and the disciples, as I say, they're in the temple. They're somewhere near the offering plate or the place where people put in their, their money, close enough to see what's going on, to see what people are putting in. By the way, I think Luke's stressing that. He, he just goes out of his way to talk about Jesus. He saw what the rich people were putting in, and he also saw the poor widow. There's something about visibility here. Jesus sees this. So it's not like today, like, goodness knows, do we have any idea? The offering plate will go around later. Some of us won't put anything in. Some of us won't put anything in because we're using direct debit. Some of us will put in envelopes. And, you know, even those who are putting something in, we've got that skill of, you know, the upturned palm or, or the downturned palm. You, you put your money in, you do a bit of this, and nobody knows what you put in. So nobody knows. I have no idea what anybody here puts in the offering. I have no idea what your recorded giving is, and we don't have any idea for each other. So this is very different. This is an environment where there was something about the visibility of what was going on. I, I remember the good old days when I first came to Kirkpatrick, they used to publish uh, in the annual report, they used to publish beside each household their annual giving. People are nodding their heads, they remember that. Um, no, that was delicious. I mean, the annual report lost something, didn't it? Whenever you couldn't pull it out and have a good nosy to see what everybody else was given. Something went missing at that point. I'm, I'm laughing. It's one of the first things I asked for at a congregational committee meeting. When can we stop that? But there's something in this occasion about the visibility. Jesus can see what the rich guys are doing with their money, what the, the 
the poor lady's given with her, her two left to her, her tiny amount. And Jesus' point's very simple. They, these guys have brought what looked like substantial amounts of money, but this woman's outgiven them all. You see, the rich guys have given, but it's, they've given without sacrifice. What they've given hasn't really cost them. A member of our congregation, just not so long ago, uh, came back to me, uh, was sharing with me a little of how he saw the, the life of our community these days. And he, he used this phrase, I donate carefully from my excess. That wasn't something I asked for. It was a, a reflection offered by a member of this congregation. The poor widow's different. It's cost her everything. She's nothing left to live on, the text says. Now, I just want to jump in here. Somebody might try to shortcut this whole conversation, this whole challenging question about us and our wealth by saying to me, Christoph, how does this make sense? You know, if we all did what the poor widow did, if we all gave away everything that we had, if we had nothing else to live on, how would that work? So if that's really your concern, if you're sitting ready to write the check, to sell the house, to give it all away by the end of this week, please come and see me at the door on the way out. And we'll talk about that. Okay? Or send me an email. But I'm, I might be wrong, I'm not anticipating a big queue at the door or a bulging inbox on that particular question. So if you don't mind, I think we'll just keep going and we'll ask the question, how are we going to think about our wealth in the light of Jesus' teaching? Let's try and work out what might be going on here uh, for these two categories of giver. Uh, particularly the rich guy. What's going on in the rich guy's head? I think what's probably going on, he wants to give to God. He's there in the temple and he wants to give to God. And Jesus' comment is enough, though, to have us wondering whether this guy's giving is really all that it might be. It seems to me there are a couple of ways for a resourceful Christian to think about their Christian giving. On the one hand, we might say, I've, I've settled, I've found a, a decent, respectable amount that I can give to God. Anybody who sees that, sees me giving that in the temple, is going to say, what a good fella. He's doing rightly. You know, he's given a good chunk of money to God. So I might choose to, to do that. And then I might choose to say, well, if that's enough to please everybody else who's watching, then any time God blesses me further, or my wealth increases... I'll keep that for myself. I've given enough to, to pacify my conscience. I've given enough even to impress other people. The rest's mine. It's, it's mine. That, that's one way a person might think about their wealth. But there's another way, and I, and I wonder if Jesus' comments in the temple are, are inviting us to see it this other way. This second resourceful person says... I've learned to be content with a relatively modest lifestyle. If God blesses me with greater responsibilities and greater rewards, 
and I'll stick to that modest lifestyle. And I'll have resources now that I can use for his glory. As my income grows and I'm well clear of what I actually need to live on, I'll give away not, not a smaller proportion of my wealth, but a bigger one. So, you're listening to me, and you've probably had this thought a number of times over the years, has he entirely lost it? Is this the moment? There's other moments along the way when I've wondered, but this feels like the moment when he really has lost it. Are you expecting us to take what you're saying seriously? I am. I absolutely am. I am not kidding. This is not hyperbole. This is for real. It's not because I'm after your money. It's because I'm your pastor and I'm after your soul. I want you, and I think I've tried to spell this out and I hope I demonstrate it, I want you to live the very best life possible. And the best life possible, well, maybe I could put it this way, I'll go for the the financial jargon, I want you to have the most bang for your buck that you can possibly have. You know that expression, in the UK we used to talk about value for money, and then the Americans came and did what they do, they just made it sound more exciting. Bang for your buck, that's what I want for me and for you. And probably at this point, this is all starting to sound a bit counterintuitive. How, how can you talk about, you know, those sound like two opposites, the most bang for my buck and giving money away. Explain that? Okay. We, I think we're inclined to think that the most bang for my buck in my personal life goes like this. The more money I keep so that I and my family with me can consume life's good things and life's good experiences. That's the most bang for my buck. Or if I'm a slightly more cautious person, the more of my wealth I keep to build my own security, then the more bang for my buck I'm getting. It makes almost perfect sense what I've just explained, described. Except it takes no account of what life's actually about. None. Westminster Catechism, the only question that anybody knows out of that whole catechism. Am I right? What is man's chief end? What's it all about? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The best way I can use my money is the way that allows me to do this. To bring glory to God and to enjoy him. That's where I get bang for my buck. Friends, some of you are wondering this morning and you've been wondering for a while, why do I experience so little life with God? Why do I have so little of his glory in me and around me? 
just, I don't know, is this the reason? Are you not investing in the kingdom? For some of us, we've become so poor that all we have left is money. Maybe you're wondering what this looks like in practice. Uh, and maybe you're wondering whether I practice what I preach. I don't know how to talk about what this looks like in, in a life, in a real life, other than to explain my own journey with this. So I'm going to do a bit of that. I grew up in a home where we tithed. Uh, that means my parents uh, understood the, broadly the biblical idea that you give a, a proportion of your wealth to God. The aspiration would be to give a tenth of your wealth to God. So my parents did that, and they encouraged us as kids to do that. So I had a funny relationship with money at that point, so I was learning how to tithe, but at the same time I was going to spend the offering that my mum had given me for church in the sweet shop. So, you know, I was baby steps, you know, learning how to, to find my way with this. But this principle was being born in us. So I remember when I had my first part-time jobs and started earning a bit of money, I, I found that I wanted to try and, uh, and stick with this, this pattern. Um, wasn't hard then when my first paycheck arrived in a proper grown-up job to, to start uh, tithing. Uh, and when I got promotions and pay raises, just simply the question, well, what, how, how could my giving change? How could it grow? I'm going to show you just now how I give today. And I've been struggling to know whether this is a good idea or not. But in the end, I think I'll, I'll do it. Jesus talked about the role of wealth in his life. He pointed out to people that he, you know, foxes of holes. I have nowhere to lay my head. I live a, a simple life. The Apostle Paul talked quite often about the role of money in his life. And the particular point that he mostly was making was, I don't take a salary from any of you churches that I work with. Don't, don't ever think that you have a hold over me as I... So he, he was a sacrificial Christian leader. He, he made his money on his tent making so that he could serve the people without them having an ownership on him. Those are, those are quite remote models for me, but the one thing that persuaded me in the end, I remember the minister of the church that I'm, I grew up in as a kid. In the church in those days, you could choose whether your giving was seen or unseen. And his, he allowed his to be seen. And I heard, I heard him explain that one time, that he wanted to be able to be a model, an example to his people in every walk of life. So before I share anything about my giving, I need to tell you about my financial uh, situation in general. I receive a good salary. The church here at Kirkpatrick Memorial is very generous. To me, that's always been how I have uh, understood that. Uh, actually, for those of you who are interested in this kind of thing, my, my salary is published in our annual statement. It'll come out in a couple of weeks' time, so you don't have to wait too long, and you can have a wee look. By the way, I, I had a great idea. Why don't we publish everybody's income at the AGM? Are you coming? I think everybody will come. 
I think it's the wee missing piece out of our AGM. People think the AGM is boring. I don't think that would be boring. I would enjoy that. One column, get, you know, income, other column, giving. Like, that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? You wouldn't miss that. I digress. I, I, I believe I'm paid very, very well. Claire, as you know, works half-time in the church on a, on a more modest kind of a salary. I, I've struggled with this, but I wonder if we're not pretty average in this congregation. There are a lot of households in this congregation that would earn uh, significantly less than we do. I, I know that. And there are a lot of households that earn significantly more than we do. I, I'm aware of that too. So I've taken a view. I might be wrong. I, I just wonder if we're not somewhere in the midfield there. And I, and I make that point just to say that when I tell my story, it might be representative. You need to interpret where you are in relation to that. A couple of quick comments regarding my view of my personal wealth before I share this with you. I'm the rich guy in this story, by the way, in Jesus' story. I don't know who you are in your head. I know I'm the rich guy. When I look globally, and even locally, once I get round of the greater Belmont Knock area, I know who I am in this story. I'm the wealthy one. And another thing I've grown to see, and I think I've been in this game long enough now, walking with Jesus, I, I've, I, I really believe that wealth is no hindrance to a deep life with God. None at all. One of my greatest joys in my life has to be a giver. It's been one of my spiritual disciplines. I've loved it to see God's work blessed as I've been able to give to it. So I just say that. And, and the last thing I say before I uh, make a disclosure to you, I'm not proud of what I'm sharing here today because the question in my mind is, could I do it a bit differently? Okay. At present, we have a standing order that goes out of our bank account once a month for £423 to our um, what we call our tithing account. That's where our giving to God then diversifies from. So the majority of this, nearly three quarters of it, comes to Kirkpatrick, to its different funds, and then some other elements go to other places. So there it is. You'll see my income next week, and now you've seen my giving. Disclosure. I thought it'd be interesting to do a couple of wee sums out of that. So let, let's say that was kind of illustrative of the kinds of things, kind of ways we could give. What would happen if we did? Well, multiply that by 12, gives you an annual figure. Throw in a bit of gift aid, and there's another figure there. And multiply that up by the number of families that there are in and around a community like this. And you come up with a figure of, you know, this is, this is giving that we could manage as a congregation. You know, you could check the figures or adjust them here and there a wee bit. 1.9 million pounds annually. A little bit shy of 2 million pounds. Rough calculations, but I'm just saying. Even if, uh, even if the operations of our church continued to grow gently, I, I don't think it would be unrealistic to say this church could have a surplus of about one and a half million pounds a year if we chose 
to give sacrificially to God. There's a lot of debate in people's minds about, you know, should we build buildings, should we give... I don't think that's the first question. The first question is, do we want to give? Do we want to give to God? The question about buildings, overseas mission, local mission, it's, it's the one below that. So I'm asking you to ask the first question first. Whenever we come back to talking about buildings in the future, we, we may have to have some conversations then. So maybe you're thinking, goodness, where did that come from? This is outrageous. I, I, I talked about taboos at the start, didn't I? I did warn you. We're, we're, we're going taboo. Okay. You've taken a passing comment from Jesus here and you've made this thing in the temple into a way bigger of a deal than it was ever meant to be. Life with Jesus, the spiritual life, it's not, it's not predominantly about money. Well, maybe that's the Jesus you've grown up with. I'm thinking back to the sermon uh, Stephen preached a couple of weeks ago. Who's your Jesus? Maybe you have a Jesus who doesn't talk about money or doesn't press the money button. He's just not the real Jesus. I need to point that out. He's not the Jesus of Scripture, and he's not the Jesus who wants to engage with you today. Jesus talked very much about money. 38 parables, 16 of them. There are 38 in total. 16 of them deal with how to handle money and possessions. 16 out of 38. In the Gospels, 288 verses deal directly with wealth and possessions. That's around about a tenth. I've been doing this book-by-book program of Bible reading with some of the guys. We're reading Matthew's Gospel at the moment. Here are a few verses from Matthew chapter 6, just one chapter. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Why does Jesus talk so much about money? Why? It's not because he wanted people's money. The the accusation is always, if you're talking about money, it must be because you want people's money. Whose money did Jesus take? Point me out that story in the scripture. Show me that part of his personality that he took money. No. He's talking about money not because he wants people's money. It's because he wants their souls. And he knows that if their money has their souls, then he can't have it. Friends, if you're in a wrong relationship with money, you will never be in the right relationship with Jesus Christ. There it is. That's what he says. I'm going to start wrapping up. And I'm trying to guess as I do that what your response might have been to what I've been sharing here this morning. Maybe you've just hated it. All right? think I'm out of line. I should leave the taboo subjects as taboo subjects. Shouldn't have to listen to stuff like that in church. Well, I have no desire to offend anybody. What I've shared this morning, I really don't believe is mine. I could have said a lot more. Could have gone to a lot more Bible passages and shown a lot more things. 
I trust everything that I've shared is consistent with the teachings of Jesus. I'm going to guess that actually not everybody here hates what I've said. I'm going to guess there's a different response. I could never do that. I've, I've heard what you're saying. It's challenging. I, I don't even deeply disagree with it, but I just can't do it. Christoph, I don't know what world you're living in, but in our household, there's never enough money to even pay the bills. Never mind to think about giving sacrificially to God. I just couldn't do it. Let me suggest that there's probably a category error in our thinking when we're thinking like that, at least for most of us. And the error goes like this. We think, I could never maintain my current lifestyle and give more to God. I could never live the same lifestyle as my neighbors on our street and give to God. Now, I have a bit of great news for you. Jesus doesn't want you to do that. He, he doesn't. That would be a burden that none of us could carry. Live the same as my neighbor and give sacrificially to God. You see, Jesus came to free us up from all those compulsions of our culture. All those slaveries in our society, they're, they're not for us. My yoke is easy, he says, and my burden is light. The way that I'm talking about this morning is the way that frees you up from anxiety about wealth. That's my honest conviction. You see, we don't have to take the biggest mortgages and drive the most expensive cars and constantly upgrade our tech and our wardrobes. We don't have to do that. Because we've got life. We've got real life. So we don't have to chase life anywhere else. Our life comes from God. See, the truth is that giving to God is possible, but it requires sacrifice. Okay? Sacrifice means saying no to some things. That's the bit that I think we struggle with or struggle even to see. But that's what God calls us to. You see, it's true what we said in Deuteronomy. We do do what we love. In the end, we'll do what we love, particularly with our money. As I've come to a number of questions around Christian commitment and sacrifice... Somebody pointed this out to me. It was, they were quoting a pastor from another church in Belfast and, he, and they said this pastor once stood up before their congregation and he said, stop saying to me I can't when you mean I don't want to. Oh, I thought that's very helpful. So is it okay if we start to be honest about these things? Don't say I can't, just say I don't want to. I don't want to sacrifice any of my time. I don't want to sacrifice any of my money. He hasn't got my heart yet. What do we need to do? I think we probably need to continue this conversation with ourselves. Nobody can help this, help us with this. Is my money helping me to love Jesus or is it hindering me? If we're part of a household, by the way, I think it'd be a good idea to talk to anybody you share financial responsibility with before you change the direct debit. 
before you put the car up on Gumtree before the estate agent comes round with the for sale sign. Make sure you talk these things through together. Are we getting the most bang for our buck as a household? Is God's glory in us? Do people see that we're different? That we don't follow their gods? That we worship the true and the living God? So you have to have that kind of a conversation and then you need to do something because here's what happens. No matter how unsettled, you know, no matter how guilted you feel today or inspired, you won't feel this way even by Friday of this week. It'll be gone. So you've got to do something. You've got to say, right, if we're given nothing, let's give something. If we're giving 1%, how could we move to 2, 4 to 5, 10 to 15, whatever, I, I don't know. If you're looking for a wee bit of authenticity in your discipleship group this week, this is, this is your question, isn't it? What's God saying to us about our wealth? And then don't do the thing that often happens in discipleship groups. What often happens in discipleship groups is that we hear the powerful challenge of Jesus Christ and then we encourage each other in compromise. We point out all the ways in which Jesus didn't really mean that. And we take the air out of each other's tires. Let's not do that. Let's make sure that any comments that there are are the ones that put air into the tires and that inspire sacrificial Christian living. I'm finished. I want to finish just by coming back to an unlikely place the bit where Jesus talked about the taxes, flick back, have a quick wee look. We didn't spend a whole lot of time on Jesus' explanation, the reason he gave for why we should pay taxes. So the guys were questioning him, and he says to them, bring me a coin. Whose portrait, whose inscription is on that? Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what's God's. So Queen Elizabeth II and her government are entitled to our taxes because her, her picture is on the, the money, isn't it? It's hers. What about God? Where in this world has he put his image? There's no currency that I can see. I, I, I don't see like, you know... here and it's on each one of us his image is on us we're to give the money things really just a symptom if you like we give ourselves to him entirely Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But give to God what is God's. Here I am, Lord. You've got me. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you didn't struggle with addressing taboos 
your passion to see us entering into life was strong enough that you spoke truth no matter how demanding and challenging it might be for those who heard you. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for coming today by these passages in your word and giving us the same powerful truths. Lord, send us from here with a bit of hope in our hearts. These things tend to make us despondent. We think we're trapped. We think we can't do anything. But Lord, we can. And we ask that you'd show us by your spirit what it is that you're calling us to do and show us that we can do it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.